I feel lucky because I think oftentimes the industries that people get into don't have that sense of community that I know that my industry has innately because they're people service oriented um, individuals. So it's just been a really, I think we, we kind of lucked out there. I, I, I don't think I knew this going into it intuitively. I was like, I like the idea of social kind of enterprise stuff, but then we started getting into it and I realized, wow, this is a pretty unique and special environment that I can't imagine outside of, you know, education and a couple other places where it really exists in that way where people are really trying to help each other and build something big. Hello, hello, this is Polina. Welcome back to I Want Her Job, the podcast. Today we are speaking with Corinne Mitchell, the co-founder of Flux, a company that makes software to manage the grants process for foundations, nonprofits, and government agencies. Flux clients already include Citibank, Deloitte, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and the government of New Zealand will make all its grants through Flux software. Corinne Mitchell was selected in Forbes' 2014 list of top 13 female founders on America's most promising companies. Today, Corinne talks to us about her story, founding Flux, and a lot more. I have to say, Corinne is exactly the type of manager I would love to work with. Honest, fun, hardworking, super smart, and as she mentions in the show, in her career, Corinne has aligned herself with managers who are mavericks. I think it takes one to know one, and as you listen to this show, I think you'll agree, Corinne is a maverick to watch and learn from. Corinne, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm thrilled you guys um, were interested in grants management. It's definitely an interesting um, side of sort of the economy with uh, philanthropy being something that's oftentimes uh, overlooked by the technology world. So really excited to to be able to chat about it today. Yeah, and and we're just really interested and curious because you brought technology to an area that's uh, obviously needed it. So just love to hear about the story and how how did it happen? Did you see it? Yeah, definitely. Great. Let's, so let's get started. Tell us more about um, Flux and, and your story of founding the company. Great. Yeah, we started Flux back in 2010 to address a market need around um, some of the more typically public sector um, but somewhat ignored technology realms. So oftentimes when you think of places where technology is first in you know, at the front of, um, you know, people's work, it's consumer based. It's a lot of the work that gets done, um, to enable, um, things in people's lives that, you know, services and, and such. And at its very core technology should be something that makes the human process, um, easier. And then you take that into the enterprise realm and it's starting to show up, of course, in your sales forces and all those sort of, um, you know, mega companies that exist um, to support essentially day-to-day operations of business. But oftentimes what's happened is that some of the sectors like in education, in nonprofits, um, sort of more philanthropic or socially minded functions don't necessarily have as much money to be able to throw at some of these solutions. Um, and as such, oftentimes the, the technology becomes antiquated um, very quickly because it's something where, um, you know, they put systems in 10 years ago and are still functioning off of them. Um, but what we saw as a really exciting opportunity for Flux was ultimately that, you know, when you look at the philanthropic market, these are people and, and organizations that are non-competing entities. Uh, they want to work together. They want to collaborate. And technology so much is about creating that common denominator of, um, you know, being able to drive change and drive process and drive visibility across, you know, various different groups. So, at its very core and very culture of that collaborative, um, you know, vibe, if you will, technology is something that can really help these guys, you know, being able to actually look at 
you know, how do we set up a system in Flux that was able to track both the operational processing of grant monies, which are basically investments into the community um, and donations into the community operations, um, and give them a way to really get visibility to what they do, how they do it, and where the impact is. So a lot of this story of Flux is really about, you know, how do we tell the, how do we do the storytelling around um, people's donations? How do we start to track things in different ways and use different sort of applications and information and be able to overlay um, more you know, or additional insights really into where these monies are going. Sure, sure. And so was there a moment or when did you have that decide that there's a need for this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the solution? It was interesting, actually. We started originally working with the Energy Foundation here in San Francisco, which is where we're based. Um, and in that, we um, were just kind of going through the people process systems data. It was myself and my three co-founders who we had previously worked at a company together. So um, kind of actually, to be honest, we happened upon it. It was something where we had a passion around being able to go into philanthropy. It was a new field for me at the time. Um, I had come from years and years of corporate background and just, you know, always kind of felt like I needed to if I was going to work as hard as I know I work, I wanted to do it at least for something where I felt like at the end of the day I could ground myself in social good. And so the concept of going to work for the Energy Foundation as just a consultant to build software was like, yeah, why not? That sounds great. Um, but what's interesting is we put together a software platform with their help um, and really created something that became a very quickly best-in-breed solution for technology and philanthropy. And as soon as we launched it and just said, here's what we did, uh, people were, were calling immediately to say, how do I get this? What do I do? How do we, you know, install it ourselves? And so we had to actually, we created a company out of um, kind of by philanthropy five philanthropists and four philanthropists. Um, and in that, it, 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 it very crazily grew because ultimately I think that industry was so starved for new technology that it became the path forward for them to almost leapfrog into modern technology from what had been a 15-year-old system. So what happened is we really wanted to honor essentially um, that growth and the aha moment that you mentioned was when I took it in front of other foundations and realized that while I had originally thought, you know, these are all unique snowflakes who, uh, you know, have these great systems and they're all so unique, there's no way we'd ever be able to codify a system to, to build, um, you know, and, and proliferate. I was, I was wrong. It was very clear to me that there are a couple of things that absolutely were um, specific or idios idiosyncratic to different orgs. But at the end of the day, the algorithm of how grants were made and what the system needed to do to support it we realized was going to be something that we could just build the system or take the system we had and make certain parts extensible to other organizations and give them the ability to configure it that we really were sitting on something that was actually really relevant, really helpful, and really important to the community. And so we created a business out of it um, in many ways, did it the right way. You know, we, we watched people work. We mimicked their user behaviors. We took the time to get it right. And as a result, by the time we basically took it to market, it was, um, you know, we didn't rush there. And then by the time we hit it, you know, it was, the product was there and it was just a matter of figuring out scale on the rest of the operations client and support side. I love that story. And so the first solution you built, can you talk to us? What was it? Um, a software? Was it very similar to what you have today or just a, tool? yeah, no, I think one of the fun parts about flux and, and this is not the case of some of my previous startups, but we've never really pivoted. We've always had just laser focus on what we do. Um, we're a very decisive company. So in that, what, Basically, you know, version one of the software is, is still present today. It's still the core behavior, the core user interface, the core functionality, the core concepts all are still present. Um, of course, we, you know, when you're building out features and capabilities, a lot of the stuff that we're adding on now are, you know, taking that core architecture 
and, and bringing essentially key parts of, you know, integrations with downstream systems or, um, you know, especially in the foundation community and the nonprofits, you know, hooking in with charity uh, check organizations, places where they can get information from, you know, the guide stars and the foundation centers about who's funding what and, you know, what's working, what's not. So we, we hook into other systems knowing that we have a core capability of really that workflow, the data management, the impact tracking, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a larger ecosystem, if you will, of systems that are out there, and I think that's the difference when you look at someone like an Oracle or an SAP who bring a full system to the, the plate. We say, you know, we know our core competency, and then we build an integration and make sure that we can incorporate work seamlessly and partner with places that, you know, create a better experience for our users. So knowing what our core competency is, Staying true to that from the very beginning is something that we've really, I think, done a great job on. I'm really proud of that. Yeah. So can you walk us through some of the highlights that stand out the most when you think about found, founding Flux? Like, did, was it, what was the most difficult? Was it the funding, actually building out the software, getting your team? And how long did it take from, from idea to launch to make it a company? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny when you start a company, and then so we we're at, we are you know at zero people, um, zero people, zero dollars, and now we're you know uh, seventy people. You know, uh, definitely doing much more um, revenue than we ever anticipated. I think it's been really exciting. But I think what's funny is it's like chapterized. Like if I think of like the the way we've grown, like I feel like the company internally has to reinvent itself every million dollars and every 10 people because the dynamics of how you address the market, what level of, um, honestly, what maturity level you bring to your operations, like you constantly have to be moving that up. So if I think about the big tranches along the way, the, the zero to, I'll, I'll do it based on people headcount because that's kind of the easiest one to do because it, it, it shows scale, but it also, I think oftentimes people are the dynamic that you have to work the most with. Um, so when we were, you know, zero to say 10 people, um, it was really just about, it was familial. It was, you know, everyone putting their head down, caring a lot about the sector, trying to figure out like, do we have this idea? Can it work? Is it real? Is there, you know, is there extensibility? Is there, is there a market even? Like, how do we go about that? So I remember in the early days, actually, um, those first 10 people and the first million dollars kind of sitting there being like, all right. It seems like there's a market here, but we don't really know. And, you know, philanthropy takes the form of corporate, you know, it takes the form of government, medical, research, nonprofits, foundations. And it's actually when we were asked the simple question, what is your total addressable market? It was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, because it's been under covers for so long. And the more we pick up rocks, the people and organizations kept coming out of the woodwork. So it's it was always this funny question of like, is this a viable market to build a business off of and, and, and can we do it right? And one thing is that we're very product forward. So we have, we're never worried about the delivery of the product. We were deliver, we were worried about the delivery to the market. Is it there? Are they going to get it? How do we convince them to invest in a 10 person startup when we're sitting in front of the government in New Zealand who is choosing bids between SAP flux and Oracle? You know, it's like, how do we, how do we even compete there? But what we realized at the very early onset is that we were unique in the sense that we gave a solution that was very specifically for philanthropy and did exactly what they wanted. Instead of having to come in and configure a sales force or do whatever they had to do, they, they were able to work with us as experts in the industry and as experts in our field to be able to essentially build something that really mirrored the way that they work. So we sort of rested in that space, realizing that what we brought was an entirely, again, laser focus on philanthropy. And that was the early day. 
Um, from there, it was a series of just scaling questions, you know, getting to 20 people all of a sudden, even again, internally, once you get to 20 people, all of a sudden, you know, if you haven't set culture, it sets itself. So starting to be really specific about who we are and what we stand for and all the fuzzy stuff that honestly, I, I at the time, like, was like, I can't even think about this. This is too much. I just like, can't do it. But it's like the most important part. So I think that was one thing that we really, um, we realized very quickly is that you have to be deliberate. Um, and then going from 20 to 40 people and, and kind of, um, we were doing triple digit year over year growth at that point in time. Um, that was actually, the, that was pretty fun. That was like, the like, this is working. This is cool. How do we do this? And then all of a sudden we had to, in, in, you know, invest in, in uh, hierarchical structures and we had to grow from a startup where before we were kind of cute and adorable and mavericky and people then, you know, 40 people and a couple million in revenue, no one thinks that's adorable anymore. So you had to reinvent yourself again, you know, as an enterprise. So if I think about that, it's really just a matter of as we grew, really making sure that we knew what our values were, but then re really being, again, deliberate about how do we make sure that we're constantly bringing the bar up. Um, and it's been definitely something that, um, you know, we're at, we're at an inflection point right now, too. Um, we're, we're, we're really starting to go big here. And um, there's a level of, you know, just um, expectation from the market that will continue to grow and build capacity. So it's exciting, but it's definitely, it's, it's funny. I think the culture changes of the company. The culture stays, I'm sorry, the values stay, the culture stays, but then the, the kind of construction of the groups, how they work and how do you stay true to that is the part that's, um, incredibly important. And that's the same thing on the customer side too. The customers that started with you, it's resetting with them and saying, look, we're still the same company, but here's how we're growing. So it's, it's a, it's a fascinating little journey. I have to admit. No, that is. Thanks for sharing. And so now you said you're at 70 and your revenue, you said it was doubling or what? what, what yeah, we are triple digit year over year growth the last like, um, I'd say the last four or five years now. So it's been exciting. So we're, you know, we're, we have a Series A now. We bootstrapped our company for the first five years entirely with no seed or investors. Had to be profitable since day one. And that was a dynamic and definitely something, a part of our culture. It's a little bit grittier than, you know, some of the other um, groups that oftentimes have a little bit of funding up front. I think it changes your mindset a little bit. Um, but we did end up taking in, the, in May 2015 a round um, of funding through uh, Felicis Ventures and Kresge. And it was wonderful uh, to be able to have some capacity building uh, available to us after essentially what we thought was going to be a, you know, a continued <laughs> long trekking journey with no shoes on. But we actually have now been able to kind of get ahead of the curve and are seeing a lot of growth come of that, um, that capacity building. Okay. People who are new to grants management, philanthropy, how can... What are the best parts of your job? What motivates you? Because it really is, um, I would think, a very fulfilling place to be and to work for. Yeah, I think, you know, definitely my – the fulfillment comes in a couple ways. I mean, it's really fun as, as an entrepreneur to see an idea that was truly just an idea come to life in front of you and, and be – so enrolled in what it, what it is, but then being able to actually tell that story and, 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 and find that the same value that you find that's important, other people are finding us to be something really exciting. And I think that's the part that, you know, at a very personal level is, is really exciting for me. At a team level, um, you know, we have this incredible staff that, you know, ultimately, you know, everyone's here for the same reason. They could be taking jobs elsewhere in these, you know, lucratively paying companies, but they get grounded in that same vision. And I think that's been really exciting. And of course, the industry, you know, 
where that sort of idea of where philanthropy could be going, how do we build an ecosystem of grantees, grant makers, nonprofits, all those things, you know, in one spot to be able to make them think differently and enact basic operational changes or policy changes that help them to really pick up efficiencies in communication and operations and all that. I think that's been really fulfilling for me. So it's kind of like the personal team and like larger industry as all three of those I think are, are unique. Um, I feel lucky because I think oftentimes the industries that people get into don't have that sense of community that I know that my industry has innately because they're people service oriented, um, individuals. So it's just been a really, I think we, we kind of lucked out there. I, I don't think I knew this going into it intuitively. I was like, I like the idea of social kind of enterprise stuff, but then we started getting into it and I realized, wow, this is a pretty unique and special environment that I can't imagine outside of, you know, education and a couple other places where it really exists in that way where people are really trying to help each other and build something big. I love that. And so I seen your bio, you went to the Menlo School and then Duke. And could you talk to us about your early influences? Do you, are there any that stand out that you think formed uh, what you decided to do? Super good question. You know, it's funny. I don't have like a hand answer for that. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, like, my, my, like, my high school math teacher was my jam. I loved him. I, Mr. Thibodeau. He had like a pocket protector and he had like crazy hair. And I just remember like it was an all guys class actually. And there were like three girls in it. And he was, uh, he was just a very, he was a very interesting, very open. He took something that was very BC calculus, which was very dull, and he made it extraordinary, and he made me like it, and I remember thinking, like, that's pretty cool, um, but that was more of just, like, a soft, like, he's he was my most influential teacher. If I think about um, mentors along the way, I've always chosen a manager that I felt was, so my managers, whether when I was at Cisco and afterwards, I've always aligned myself to someone who I thought was a bit of a maverick who was kind of pushing the envelope. Jason, who's the CEO now, is definitely that way. Um, in a really wonderful way, they they challenge the status quo. And it's uncomfortable sometimes, but I like that. I find comfort in chaos, I think. So I kind of like the idea of, you know, my earliest uh, manager's Lady Sheila Carson, who was just extraordinary. And they were hard workers. They were not, you know, unforgiving in their... Uh, expectations. And I think that pushed me to be better. And for personality, I'm just an incredibly competitive person. So I really appreciated that, even though, you know, at times it was really incredibly challenging. Um, it was always uncomfortable. But um, but I think I would be, you know, amiss to say that, like, I've always cast in the three or four managers that I've had, I've always aligned myself to someone who's very influential, that I could learn from, and I took a role that may not have been the sexiest role, and that people might, you know, of my peers be like, oh, no way, I'm not taking that role. But I realized that if you can align yourself to someone who's, who's really interesting and challenging the status quo and moving places, you can learn a lot more in a very quick, you know, matter of time. I so that's always that been my, my, my jam. Um, but, you know, same thing with Jason here as well. Like, he's, uh, I mean, he's my business partner, but I, I definitely you know, defer to him in, there, in many ways because there is a leadership quality there that I think just by example um, pushes you. Yeah, no, thank you. That is such good advice. I'm going to um, write that down and think deeply about it because I was going <laughs> to ask you, you know, about your years at Cisco, what did you learn and how do you think it prepared you for Flux? So I think you kind of partially answered that. Um, is there anything else yeah. you want to add? I actually really liked at Cisco. It was interesting. I mean, I graduated in 01 when the market was just bonkers and tanking and jobs were being rescinded and things were going 
Absolutely insane. Um, and in that, um, you know, I think I was very grateful and I was like, sure, I can be an accountant. I literally was an accountant, which I was like the world's worst accountant in the entire world. It's just <laughs> terrible. It was absolutely abysmal. Um, however, that was a really, what I learned there was that this was going to be a skill and actually what Cisco gave me, and I was there for like eight years, um, they gave me the ability to be mobile and move around, not mobile as in like work from home, but like mobile as in, you know, every year and a half, two years, I was able to move to different departments and, and kind of really um, take advantage of some of the structure and the learning that they are willing to offer. Um, in that sense, you know, I would have to move companies if I was in the startup realm to be able to accomplish as much as I did there. So I don't actually poo-poo big business, even though I'm not sure I'd ever go back to it. Um, I am extremely grateful because I think it also gave me an appreciation for communication structure, um, the, basically the, how to manage large-scale organizations. And that's something that I think I can uniquely bring to Flux as we start to scale. I actually, it's funny, I'm getting more and more comfortable in the leadership role because all of a sudden it's starting to look more and more like organizations I've seen before. Um, so in that, um, I really appreciate Cisco for having offered a really amazing structure to learn. And I, I think working for a big company um, is, <laughs> I mean, I will, I'll be so bold as to stand in front of my, like, startup crew who's like never done any of the, the big company stuff to say like I think it's important for your maturity I think it's important for you to realize and be grateful and I think it's important to understand hierarchy structure how things get done the importance of cross-department collaboration because the maverick stuff like as you start to build a company you've got to have a sense of structure to be able to ground it so I loved working at Cisco um but yeah I was definitely towards the I had I kind of hit like mid-management there and then I was like I gotta go <laughs> I was like I'm not playing the political game but I, I thank you Mahalo for your help and I uh and I moved on from there but I loved it no that's favorite ways to spend free time I'm um I am an impulsive traveler so I spend a lot of time on the road uh, and there are some amazing things that if you just kind of if you're in Miami and you pause for a moment and then you know, you can jump to, you know, if you're there for work, like looking around and saying, I could go to Cuba or I could go here. I can like, you know, whatever it is, I mean, legally to Cuba, of course, but, <laughs> but you can do all these, um, you know, amazing things that if you kind of just keep your eyes open, um, you know, traveling is just for me, um, it's the thing that grounds me. It's the thing that reminds me what's important. It tells me the bigger picture. So I, I just really, relish the opportunity to get out and see new things. I love new experiences. Um, I'm also a big runner, snowboarder, and kind of, you know, soccer player. So I'm just an outdoorsy person. Um, and um, and I do jigsaw puzzles. That's what, that's what I do. I love that. And are there any other causes that inspire you or that where you'd want to be more involved? You know, I actually, the reason I was really interested in your podcast, I really do, I have a very unique take, I think, on women's empowerment and where you can drive. and be. Women entrepreneurship is very exciting to me. And not in the traditional sense, like, oh, we have a glass ceiling, let's punch through it. Like, it's not that kind of stuff where I'm like, like, I believe all the lean-ins, and I think it's amazing to get any structure you can that gives people the ability to have a voice. But I do have some really interesting ideas around how I'd like to see women's empowerment and women's um, entrepreneurship continue through. And um, I think that's something that, you know, in my next life I would, um, or next career, you know, when Flux, you know, 20 years from now, I don't know what where Flux is, you know, I, I have an idea where it's going, but ultimately, you know, if I were to do something else, I would probably be in that, in that avenue. No, that's really interesting. Do you, do you have any sense of what it would be or just that direct, a general oh, yeah. intuitive? Have, 
thoughts, ideas, and like some structure that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of playing with, but I really don't know what it looks like yet. And until I really do, I'm, I'm not sure I can articulate it with any um, brilliance to, to a larger community, but there is something about being true to who you are, your values, the things that you do well, um, and realizing that the feminine energy in that is actually something that is very, in a wonderful way, disarming to people. Um, it gives basically, you know, even in a sales role, um, that I have, I think I bring something very different to the table and I have to honor the fact that, you know, my approach is different, but how I can be successful with it, you know, is, is just something that I feel like oftentimes people are given formulas for how to work and that's just too limiting. It's too myopic. So I don't know what it looks like yet, but I'm really, I'm intrigued by it. So you're now a founder of a multi-million dollar company, tripling in growth, a dream of millions of people. So since your success with Flux, can you tell us how has your life changed and how has it stayed the same? <laughs> um, so I think, um, wow, that's a really good question. I haven't actually thought about an answer for that. Um, how has it stayed the same? I still... I still rent because I live in San Francisco. <laughs> I still have a very, um, you know, I, I think my interests have always been the same. I've had to kind of, I had to fight for the things that really mattered um, and sort of let the noise that was in the rest of my life kind of fall away. So I think my need to be like a social butterfly and my need to um, go do everything at certain points in time, um, you know, I had to realize, you know, which are the activities I care the most about, which are the friends and the sort of grounding places where I need to have those touchstones and really just fight for them. Because I think in a personal lifestyle choice, you just have limited time. Um, when something like a, a business starts growing and it, you need to respect momentum and the magic where it exists. So I am by no means every day. I'm very humble walking into the office in the sense that I know what we're doing is really exciting. I know it's something that, um, Gosh, I would. I, I mean, I. I don't know, even know how to replicate. It was really just something where we came upon a, a group of people in an industry that's doing the right stuff, and we were able to offer a product that I think hit a hit a note for them. So personally, I think one of the things that I did that I've always done is you respect momentum, um, and the things I changed was basically taking away some of the white noise that oftentimes were you know activities I didn't need to be doing, commitments that perhaps um, were just things that I was doing because it seemed like a nice to have, but. I think it, you very quickly kind of fall in and realize what matters and who matters and just fight for that because the opportunity cost of spreading yourself too thin is that you miss those people and those things. So that's kind of, I don't even know if it answered your question, but that's, that's like my, what my gut is as, as, as to what is the same and what's changed. Um, those things and those people are the same. And then the amount of time I see them, I'm just much more deliberate about going out and making sure that that occurs. And so for me, it's a lot of you know, there's a core set of groups of friends and family that I'm in touch with. Um, I'm a runner and I'm a snowboarder. So like, these are things I, I use as my meditative devices to move forward. But ultimately the lack of time becomes sort of your biggest, um, your kind of rate limiting or rate determining step. Got it. No. So from what I'm hearing is you're saying you're really intentional, deliberate on how you spend that free time and what you put into those three yeah. hours. And when you say respecting momentum, you mean that, you know, you're growing, so you have to put in those hours. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, I don't I don't know any way around the hard work aspect of starting a company. And I don't think that I don't know that 
the outlier is the person who's like, oh, I just happened to run this app, and like, lo and behold, it took off, and I don't even have to worry about scale because if I, you know, put in the money and I put in the time, like, I'm good to go. I mean, if you're looking at any company that has any services realm, or if you're looking at anything that has an enterprise play, it's incredibly hard work, and it really is something that you need to be prepared to immerse into at a level that you never thought was possible. And the hard work is the thing that keeps you kind of moving and keeps the company moving because as soon as you get complacent, the world's going to run faster than you. So there is just this ongoing thing, like every chapter of Flux, I can always say, every time I think it can't get harder and then it can't get you know more momentum, it keeps going. And so I think you have to be ready to kind of change very quickly. And that thread, if you will, of... of the common denominator over time are these people and these activities that all of a sudden as basic as, you know, if you're on the road 80, 80% of the time, like, you know, I was for a couple of years, you know, all of a sudden stupid things like skin regimen ground you. It's the weirdest thing. I don't know how to say, but just like there are certain things that you just get attached to and you need to make sure they're present so that you can hold yourself grounded each day. So, I mean, I'm kind of a workaholic, so I, I, I defer to the others who probably would say that's a complete joke. And like, But for me, that's how I got through it, because I have a very structured kind of approach to keeping my personal life personal and managed. And so how do you do that? Do you mean, do you just block out weekends or nights that are just, you know, for your personal time? Yeah. Um, I wish I was that deliberate. I mean, I think what I actually do is I schedule races. So, for example, running. Um, I'll schedule a marathon, which I know that you have to train for, and there's basically, at some point in the day, I will address like the fact that I have to go on a run, um, because I know that there's a large run <laughs> in three months that will kill me if I don't actually train, so part of it is just putting in ways to be able to have little like wins across the line so that I'm feeling like day-to-day I can kind of move that way, and it's not... It's not left to me to just say, do I feel like running today? It's more like, you know, you need to run. Otherwise, like the New York Marathon may actually take you down. So I think that's one way I've kind of done it is to build, um, you know, kind of goals along the way. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I have, I have one friend that like is hype, like my most productive friend, which is definitely not me. Um, she actually sets aside the last Friday of every month. She takes a PTO day from work and she goes back and looks back at her month and says, here's what I did well, here's what I could have improved, and here's what my goals are for the next month. And it's not like a spa day, and it's not like a bitch. She literally sits down, and just like any other day at work, but she does it from her house, and really maps it out. And that's like a level of management that I like can't even comprehend how she does it, but I tell you, she's like my most productive and most impressive friend I have. So anyway, maybe that works. I should probably do that, but I, I, I haven't yet. <laughs> No, that does sound like a great idea. So can you think of any lessons learned or stories that stand out when you recall the ups and downs of Founding Flux? Um, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I think at the very beginning in, in, in any startup, the ups and downs become a higher frequency, meaning they are higher highs and lower lows. Um, so it's interesting. At the very beginning, everything was a high and everything was a low. Um, the the kinds of things that stand out are even just securing a certain client um, or, you know, having like an issue with customer service where you're worried about losing a client. Like these things, the highs and lows um, were actually like pretty minimal things now that I look back at it. But at the time, were just everything, yeah. um, which is kind of funny because now what's happened is I feel like I had to flatten out that wavelength. So the highs are medium and the lows are medium just to kind of almost as self-preservation, like not take too much bank in any of it. Um, and just keep your eye on that larger prize. So in terms of the actual, like, really critical events and things that I remember, you know, looking, um, 
uh, like a high would be, for example, when we first realized the platform was extensible across multiple clients and we had sort of assumed like, hey, we've got something interesting here. But I know we went into this one meeting with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society like eons ago and halfway through the demo, the guy who's the head of these, like the chief technology officer, closed his computer and he said, you know what you have here. And I remember looking at him being like, apparently not. <laughs> So it was really wow. exciting. So that was a cool one because we were like, holy crap. <laughs> um, that was a cool one. And then, you know, like when I was I was on the road, I think for seven weeks straight, I hadn't even been home and I was being sent to all these various different clients. And I remember at the like last stop somewhere in Belfast, I think I just like crashed into like a somewhere into a pint and just like couldn't even figure out where my, I didn't know what time it was. I'd been there for less than a day and was leaving within two hours. So this, the lows have always been ones that sounded more glorious, and Instagram made it look a lot cooler than it was um, because I could take a picture of Belfast and it would look super cool, but people didn't realize that, like, at that point in time, those sort of lows are, are just treacherous. Yeah. So I've learned kind of to take those in stride now, and, and I try to keep the, the frequency a little bit more manageable, so it's hard to keep the highs now. You have to kind of be like, yeah, maybe that won't work out, or maybe, like, I'll stay level about it in this way because... Otherwise, the lows end up eating you alive. And then are there any resources or um, I, things you use for your personal development, um, self-development or work to professional development? Uh, I am like a Google search maniac. So every time, I know it sounds so silly, but anytime things come up about like, oh, I have a, you know, a need for um, a new insurance policy and like, I mean, just dumb stuff that comes up in the idle chit chat of like, you know startup land is that you have like you know a lot of stuff you've never heard of and you have to go look it up and so you basically I mean I'm just like all over the internet when someone's on a call and says a word I don't know or like a concept I don't know I'm looking it up and kind of pulling through so it's basically it's just like constant internet searching and asking questions and making sure I understand context and application I read a lot of kind of Harvard you know business sort of publications um I'm very, uh, I started working with a coach, which I think is invaluable. And in that sense, um, helping to bring structure to how I think things through, how do I mentor, how do I grow? I think that's been something that I haven't been great at where intuitively I can always push harder, but you know, I can always, um, I personally feel like I, I can run that stuff for a while, but being able to enable others to do their job and excel at it, I think is something I'm very aware that I need to scale. So I think sometimes things like that, which aren't your natural leaning and aren't found on the internet, you need to work with someone who can help you sort of see how do you become a better leader and a better person. Um, so I really like the idea of working with coaches because that's kind of the shadow side that, you know, oftentimes we all don't see in ourselves. Um, what else? I read the Atlantic. I try to stay up to speed on like current events and things like that just to constantly bring context as to what, you know, what we're doing and how the world would, would digest it. So I think just reading a lot tends to, tends to be my go-to. That's interesting. I'm curious about, so the coach, is it uh, like a management coach or what kind of coach do you? Pretty new. Yeah. It's an executive coach. I just started working with them. It's been really interesting. Only a couple sessions so far, but you know, the intent there is to be able to have a place where um, some of the things that I might trip over where I might take things on that I shouldn't or where I might be reacting to something more emotionally than, you know, is merited, just making sure that I have the ability and the, the communication mechanism to kind of get out what I need to make sure I understand why I'm reacting the way I am and how to move forward productively. Um, some of those things, you know, as you're in a startup and in a growing startup, 
your role changes so often. I think my job at every six months has been a completely different job because as you grow, you're just being asked to do new things. And it's a really uncomfortable place to constantly feel like you're being pushed to that edge. Mm -hmm. Um, So having someone that's a third party just ear to say, here's what I'm experiencing you know, where have you seen this before? I mean, it's no different. It's not like it was, you know, people have, haven't gone through this and I'm pioneering something crazy here. It's just, it's each person has their own journey to go through and there are certain things that are harder and, and easier for others. So having a sort of personalized uh, journey, almost like Sherpa, if you will, to assist along the way is, is really something that I think is, has proven to be really helpful for me. I can see how that would be so helpful. And I think that shows what a great leader you are because oh. you're, you know, reaching out for that experience, right? Because this person probably has coached other people in the same position. Yeah. So why not learn from them? Corinne, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Wonderful. Thank you. And definitely keep me posted about where I can help. I'm really excited about what you guys are doing too. So happy to uh, do any outreach. If anyone's interested in learning more about Flux too, by all means, reach out.